Hey, shalom, everybody. Welcome back to the second segment in this episode of Image Bearers Radio, where we are talking with one of my heroes, Dr. Dina Dye. And uh, Dina, again, thank you so much for being with us. Last uh, segment, we left off with wisdom. And I want to talk a little bit before we get into the nuts and bolts of Noah's story and the flood. Um, let's set the foundation of chaos and order. Again, we kind of use these terms a lot, and God came to bring order out of chaos, order out of chaos. That Yeah, that's great. But what are we, as an, as an American citizen, looking at our life right now, the culture around us, the governmental powers, what's going on in the world, how we deal with our neighbors, our own kids and our home and our spouses, how do we, how do we make real the ideas of ordering chaos? Yeah, so uh, going back a little bit to wisdom, because when we exercise wisdom, wisdom is like the, the purest of all the attributes. By making a decision based on wisdom, that brings order into the camp. So the, the kings of the ancient world, as I mentioned, always, in order to function, in order to govern, asked of their gods, you know, for, for wisdom to be able to rightly rule justly, righteously, those, those mechanisms. And so um, that was an essential ingredient on how to govern in order to bring peace, rest, to the camp. I guess peace would be the number one thing, shalom. Mm. So order was always associated with shalom, peace, which meant the king was firmly established on his throne. He had been enthroned and by he had defeated his enemies. So that's the ultimate. The enemies of the king, or in our case, the enemies of God have been defeated. So when the enemies rise up against the empire, against the king, the enemies create chaos through the things that they do. So we're, we're seeing that in real time now because we have, an, we have entrenched in our government the enemies of order, of creation, of, of Yahweh himself. And so what it's, how they govern and the policies they have and the decisions they make are producing nothing but death. Death, in, in, and it's affecting every single community in the United States so the antidote to death, disorder, chaos, you know, government structure, central planning <laughs> is mm-hmm. creation, creation life. So that doesn't just mean having lots of kids, which that's a good thing to do. It means that every life, every image bearing life is to be producing fruit. This is why Yeshua talked about this so much that you would produce fruit. Now, how that fruit manifests itself is going to be different for different people because you have a different walk. So for me, for example, uh, writing a book like this and, and it going out and it, people receiving it and, and it's, you know, going from place to place and people are reading it and they're, you know, being touched by it and it motivates them to change their behavior or their thinking. That would be an example in my life of producing mm. fruit. You, on the other hand, you have a congregation. And so as you equip your congregation to be able to go out in the community and produce life and fruit. So really, that's, that's the bottom line that I see the difference. So even though we are living and it's going to get more chaotic and more difficult, you know, as these, these enemies seem like they're winning, the way we push it back is we produce fruit. And the people of God all across the United States in their sphere of influence, need to be producing life. That's the simplest explanation. Yeah, I, I love that. And I think I remind our people often, you know, that if you came from a, a really heavy evangelical background, 
um, it can be overwhelming almost to the point of paralyzation uh, to think, well, we have to win the world. We have to right. win the, the country. We have to fight you know, on the highest levels. And really, it's, really, it starts with the person next to you. I mean, an oversimplified, it's kind of like yeah. Sunday school, but really that's the truth, um, that it's our communities, our local, exactly. you know, I can't change the state or the Washington, D.C. is not going to listen to me from, you know, Podunk, Southwest Louisiana. But if I can change my, my community, if I can teach my kids well, um, and if, if I can be nice to the person of the opposite race or, you know, a different race from me at the store, and it's those little things. Yeah. And we're talking about order. That's I love the fact that right, right. The the fact that you know we tie order to shalom. I love that, which also to me ties it to to, to kunolam, which is the whole the whole process, the process we're involved in. I, I love that. I think that's really, really, really excellent. So, um, all right, let's get into Noah a little bit deeper, a little bit more detailed. And this, guys, hang on. If you've not read the book yet, or if you're not familiar with this kind of language, because there's it's gonna it's gonna twist your mind a, a little bit. So you talk about cosmic mountain, which is uh, a, a, an idea that I love that we see je- uh, the the Garden of Eden, mm-hmm. um, eat the place of Eden, the garden actually being a mountain, right? Um, the, the sacred mountain, which is something that completely you know flipped my mind when I I, I realized that a, a few years ago, thanks to people like you and 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 uh, and others. Um, but you see this mountain thing all, I mean, you could take however long and just do a study on mountains in Absolutely. scripture. It would take you, yeah. it would take you months yeah. to do them all and see what's going on, uh, in those, in those, you know, the axis mundi you talk about. And, and this is something that's shared through all the ancient cultures, right? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, we, we just miss it. <laughs> we right. miss it as, as new readers. Um, but the, these things are so, so important. So that's a foundational image. Yeah. Um, chaos waters are yeah. another foundational image and those things are tied together in in right. some ways right there they have yeah. a relationship and so what is the what is the relationship between uh cosmic mountain and 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 chaos waters if we would say it like that so and and scholars will kind of argue over in genesis one did everything come from non-order or chaos you know i won there so i don't know right. the idea <laughs> good answer yeah yeah waters came to represent in time enemies armies Anything flood-related, raging rivers, obviously, it was a destructive force. So to combat the destructive force, we have the mountain, the mountain's fixed, stable, solid place. So how they viewed it is, as the waters of chaos were pushed back, dry ground would appear. And we see that in a number of stories in scripture, especially Genesis mm-hmm. chapter 1. And then the, the dry ground, it wasn't like this sort of flat plain but it, 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 they call it the primordial hillock. You, you see that in the Egyptian writings. So they saw the dry ground, they associated it with a mountain that sort of kind of grew up, if you will, this, this solid place where the waters of chaos could not take it down. Mm. And then on, eventually in time, they would, the gods would build their temples on top of the mountain. And so the mountain became this connecting point between heaven and earth. And that was very important in the ancient world as well. So temples were located in this sphere between heaven and earth. And so that the gods had the top of the mountain as their temples. And so mountains became the the high place where you would go and you would worship your God because he was up top. Of course, you were down below. So the perfect representation we see in at Mount Sinai with Moses up on top of the mountain in that in that place in the cloud with the sapphire stone, 
And then the, the, the priests who are the mediators, you know, kind of coming and going up and down. And then the people at the bottom of the mountain. And this just is language all, all throughout. So the stable fixed place of the mountain contrasted with the, the, the image of, of waters that would come and destroy and flood and ravage and, you know. So now you, you see when the children of Israel leave uh, Egypt to go to the wilderness, to go to the mountain, and they're going to build a tabernacle, which is basically going to replicate, is kind of like a microcosm of temple, replicate the right. mountain, and they cross the sea on dry ground. And you see the same in the story of Joshua. They're going to cross the Jordan River on dry ground. And then, of course, they have the tabernacle, and then it's going to be in Gilgal, and it's going to then be in, um, I just went blank, in Shiloh. Shiloh and, yeah. and then we have the same language. I mean, Yeshua, the same language uh, pops up for us in, um, in the New Testament when we see Yeshua. He's, he represents a temple, right? He calls his body a temple. And where is mm -hmm. he? He's over the seas. So, he represents that sort of governmental structure and sovereignty over the, the waters of chaos. And the language picks itself up in, in Revelation as well. And then we, when we finally see in Revelation, there is no more sea. So that mm -hmm. force that causes destruction and chaos is eliminated when God is seated on the throne and enthroned over the world. So that's kind of a quick synopsis of those two elements. Yeah. And the, the beast is thrown into the sea, if I remember that correctly, yeah. this this idea of judgment. Um, and so, yeah, I love that you, you brought out that point because different places uh, in Scripture, it talks about armies as a flood. And it's, right. it's, not, a, it's not a literal water flood, but it's right. devastation and, and judgment and, and a yeah. bringing of chaos. I love that. A couple quotes from the book. You said, um, flooding in the ancient world was a type of judgment, which we've talked about. And the ancient always searched for the root cause of their God's anger. The people acknowledge the unpredictable and petty nature of the gods they served. And I love that quote because even though the, the Israelite story borrow, not borrows, that's not the right word. It's, it's in, it's encased in its culture, mm -hmm. right? So they're familiar with Babylonian epics. They're familiar with Akkadian stories. They're familiar with all of these, these other stories. It's their language. It's their right. code. Like we talk about computers today because everybody has one and knows what they're about. Um, the, they, but they're, the striking parts of the Israelite story are where they're different, right. uh, where God makes a, a really clear uh, delineation. And we would never think of our God as, as petty and unpredictable, right? That's, that's the whole opposite story and characterization of, of, right, yeah. of the God of Abraham. So I love that quote. Yeah, well, well so our, our story, Israel's story, is relational. It's how to right. approach and have a relationship. The story, the ancient world story is, you know, all right, what did we do wrong? We're going to be smashed over the head by our gods. And then we're, we're, we're going to approach our God and try to figure out a way so he's not angry with us anymore. So Appeasement, we're going to give him this right. offering or, you know, whatever. So the structure is the same. But the, what's so unique and significant about the Bible is that God introduces a story of creation that is 180 degrees opposite right. of the story right. of the nation's. So within the same culture, the same kind of things are happening. They all think about mountains and waters in the same way. However, this is what our God does. This is what he looks like. This is how he intervenes and brings about the miraculous and this new creation life. Right. And we, we get in trouble when we think about 
atonement as appeasement. Right. Because those are not not at all the same Big thing. Problem. And, but we but we process it that way yeah. a lot of times. Well, you know, the sacrificial system was about appeasement. Yeah. And and that's that's a big, big, big problem. Another quote from Morales, Michael Morales yeah. was just insanely brilliant. Insanely. Um, he, he talks about when a when a temple stood, its existence was associated with controlling the forces of the chaos of water. Right, which is what we're, we're to the, it's that refuge, it's that safe place yeah. and that, that order. It's just so good. So the story of Noah and the flood, um, God comes, he hates humanity, right? And he, he's, he's just sick of all their nonsense. So he's just, he's bloodthirsty, right? Because that's the Old Testament God. And so that's he's it. just, he gets, he gets fed up and he just kills everybody. Yeah. And he goes, that'll show them. Yeah. They'll never act like this again, Right. That's, that's not the story of, of Noah and the flood. Yeah. No, it's it's not. Yeah. Um, I want to talk really about the, this cleansing of sacred space, and you know, and the, you've addressed this in in, other, in your other books as well, which is a huge um, understanding and 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 lens to view this through. But more specifically, let's talk about because we we're going to run out of time because we could do probably fifteen episodes and still I know. not 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 be <laughs> well, done. We there's do so it many again. things. <laughs> there, there's so many things I want to pick your your brain about. But um, let's talk about the ark and the ziggurat. You write about. Okay this in in uh, in I think the third chapter or so uh, you say the ark representing a ziggurat makes it likely that the deluge narrative was authored and understood from the matrix of a and e temple theology so so the just like in 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 my opinion in Genesis 1 we have this thing well in modern day we have this thing called creation science right mm-hmm. where you have a bunch of scientists smart people that are trying to prove God create prove Genesis 1 is scientific right and and it's not. I mean, let's just be honest. It's it's not a scientific report. Uh, I love Dr. John Walton, who you quote in the book as well. We've we've spoken with him uh, in, at conferences at a conference before. But the Genesis one fourteen talks about the stars in the heaven being for signs and seasons. We know that word seasons is festival, religious observances. Right. So the the first chapter of Genesis is theological. It's not scientific, okay. right? But we have spent so much time and energy, and money, and resources, and we've weaponized it and made it toxic that if you don't believe it's science, then you're in heresy, right? Okay. And we've, in, in doing so, we've missed the whole bigger, broader point that God is king, and he's setting up a house here on earth, yeah. not over in the cloud somewhere, right? So in my opinion, we do the exact same thing with the story of Noah and the flood, Right. We want to know, well, how big was the boat and how, and listen, I'm, this winter I'm taking my kids to the, the creation, or not, the, uh, the yeah. Ark Encounter, yeah. right? Because I want to see it. It's cool. Yeah. But, but that's so not the point, right. how big it was and what it looked like and how many animals and how they fit it. That's the stuff we want to know. The, 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 the writers of the story could care less about those things, right? right? So what does it mean that the Ark is a ziggurat? What, what does that mean? Well, so in the ancient, uh, well, in Mesopotamia in particular, and we, I mean, we could see the same thing in Egypt, but um, so for their God to have their temple on top of the mountain to connect heaven and earth, like you don't have mountains down there in ancient Samaria, <laughs> the Persian, right. I mean, it's flat, the alluvial plain, out in, you know, we have Tigris and Euphrates. So they built an artificial mountain, which is what we call which- a ziggurat. Which uh, Tower of Babel, Babel, yeah, right? Yeah, that plains of Shinar, the yeah. plains of Shinar, yeah, where there's yeah. no mountains, right. no mountains, and no real construction material either. And so right. the idea of uh, they were building their own uh, artificial mountain in order to right. have, you know, for for their god to dwell on top of the mountain and and go through the whole process. And so many scholars are associating the Ark with a a 
the ziggurat type structure. Now they have different level, you know, there's this level thing going up and mm-hmm. some are seven, some are nine, some are 12, who knows. But we see clearly that the arc is a three level pattern. And, and most scholars will tell you that, that that's related to a temple, heaven, earth, and sea uh, idea connected to the three chambers in a temple, which we, you know, we'd see in the second, first and second temple period. But that these were one and the same. The, the difference with Noah's Ark is it's basically a mobile ziggurat, if you will. Um, wow. The idea is that it would move out, not be f- it located and fixed in one place. Because obviously, if you built some st- stone ziggurat, it's not really going anywhere. But the function of the ziggurat was very similar to the function of the Ark. Now, of course, we know where did the Ark land? It landed on top of a mountain. That's very mm. significant. The ancient world would have <laughs> sat up and took notice. And we just sort of... We've got people, we just keep sending people up to, you know, the mountains in Turkey to find the remains of a wooden boat, right? But, right, right. I exactly. mean, good luck, but, you know, you know, yeah. who knows? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But that's not the point. And so now you have the, you have, just think of the visual of, you know, the mountain and the, this temple-like structure on top of the mountain where the God would dwell. So there's Noah and family and, and Yahweh in their midst in this uh, sacred space reproducing fruit <laughs> animals and people and new seed and new life is going to come forth when they when they come out and we're going to start the recreation process and the the art that whole story is just a replay of genesis chapter one we're just right. starting over again and so of course noah comes out and builds a vineyard in the same way that god made made a garden but it, it's just you know when i started writing the book I thought, oh, this is going to be a piece of cake, right? There's hardly any <laughs> books on Noah's Ark. And there really aren't any whole books. That, you know, there's some, but not compared to what you'd, you know, pick in any other topic. So I'm like, ah, piece of cake. Well, it wasn't a piece of cake. I started reading articles. I probably had like 100 articles. And I'm reading them. I'm going, I think I see a theme here because all of the scholars, there wasn't one scholar who didn't evaluate it from this perspective. Because wow. it's a hard thing to write about. And then, you know, you're going to get labeled this, that, and the other, which is why I quote a lot of important scholars throughout the book, because I'm not crazy. This is how the ancients <laughs> viewed this. And now right. we've we got to rework this. we got to regroup. And now we, we need to see this language running all the way through the Bible, especially into the New Testament. When you think of all the things that Yeshua does, he's just replaying all this stuff that we, ha- you know, the context of the ancient Near East world. Yeah, and and I found that in in temple because I talk about temple a lot. It's very very important to me, thanks to people like you and Rico and, and Joe Good. And um, but you don't dabble in temple. You don't you don't just get an idea of how temple works, and then all of a sudden the Bible starts to make sense. Yeah, uh, temple imagery is something you have to invest in. You yes. have to really yeah. be purposeful about studying it and seeing it. And so, I, but once you do, it, it, it's everywhere. It's amazing. It, it is, and it, it opens up. It opens up everything. Um, you know, to to a different a different level of meaning. So also in the book, I mean, again, we could just go on and on and on because this is my this is stuff I nerd out over, <laughs> I geek out over. Um, you talk about Cain and Abel, which I shared with you just before that the Cain and Abel is a story that I've revisited the last couple of weeks, and it's just, it's been really, really challenging. I guess let's, in the last uh, four or five minutes we have, um, let's talk about 
um, about the new creation and about the hopeful side of the flood because it gets demonized a lot of times mm-hmm. as, as you know God being bloodthirsty and, and a vengeful God. Um, but let's talk about the 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 ark as a temple and then moving in, which we've kind of covered, moving into new creation and the vineyard, which you touched on uh, just now, and how that brings us back to Genesis 1 and then how that brings us forward to Yeshua and then to the Revelation. Yeah, so I mean, the, the, so we have the process all work. The, the waters recede. I mean, it's so interesting that the, the story talks about the waters covering the mountains and 15 cubits above the mountain. You're going, okay, like, that's really weird. Why is that information even in there, right? right. But then when you, you, this is a perfect example of what you were talking about. When you know the temple and the details of the temple, then you understand. Because there, I do have a, in my chapter four, I compare the ark with the tabernacle. This is very important right. because both were mobile uh, sacred spaces right. moving right. out. And so this using the 15, which is the entrance uh, on either side of the tabernacle, the entrance there was 15 cubits. And there's multiple examples um, in the scriptures, I mean, in the temple that relate to 15 cubits. But the idea of 15 was always associated with coming into the presence of God. Wow. So it's very interesting that they that that information would be would be placed in there. And so here's this place of of, of safety, of of uh, connection of coming into the presence of God. And, and uh, let me just back up because Genesis chapter one, uh, te- what, what we understand from that is that, that worship is the telos or the goal of creation. Mm, That's right. the point of all of this. And so Noah and his family are, are functioning as he is, as priest and king, high priest and king in that sacred space. Um, for example, you know, it, we translate it window like there was a window in the roof, but right. the Hebrew word there is, is is Zohar, which means there's an illumination. So the right. idea of the divine presence Shikita. in that space, right. again, yeah. sacred space, set apart, sep- there's a boundary around it, separated from the nations, which were, is the water. And that's the whole, that's the <laughs> thing for all of, all of the Bible. That we're, we 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 want to be in sacred space, approaching God for worship, and there's there's a boundary of protection and preservation, and so the the ark functions in exactly the same way. So in the ancient world, the only kings and court, courtiers, etc., had access to to wine and vineyards. They were the vintners, so the regular people didn't have any access to it. So again, it kind of distinguished Noah as sort of a king priest in that environment. So what does he do? He, he builds a vineyard and he's going to produce food for the, the priestly class. And I think there, there's a whole lot we can you know, talk about another time about Noah functioning as a priest on the ark. And we see this with the vineyard. So this idea of the vineyard compared to the garden and the idea of new creation, new life coming forth to feed the people or to feed the ruling class, if you will, at the time. So the Bible, of course, is filled with language, graphic language related to vineyards and treading the wine press and the, the cup of the wine of fury of God. And, right. And there's so much vineyard, wine, vintner, you know, grapes language uh, coming, you know, starting with the Noah story and going all the way through. And Yeshua picks it up, of course, speaking of himself as being the vine, if you will, in the vineyard, the vine representing the main 
really represented the king, which I mean, I don't have time to go into, but so he picks up the same language. And of course, we see ultimately in the book of Revelation. So this is this new language of new creation. Excellent. Well, Dina, we're running out of time. Um, your book is available on Amazon. Is that the best yes. place to get it? Great. Yeah, best and place then to get it. website to keep in touch with you? Foundationsintora.com. Very good. Like you on Facebook and follow you all the Absolutely. different places. I'm on Getter and CloudHub and MeWe and, you know, everywhere. Yeah. Well, thank you, Dr. Dina Dye. Uh, we will do this again very shortly, hopefully, if I can get my schedule together. We love it so much. We love you. Thank you to everybody for listening. Go out and buy this book. Buy all three of them. Read them together. And I promise they will be a massive blessing to you. Until next week, we love you very much. Shalom, shalom. Shalom, shalom. <laughs>